John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 424.jb0412, certificate number 37914, the Erica typewriter. Typewriter. Yeah, I'm going to say typewriter as four syllables, I've just decided. I literally like it. Turning over a new leaf. <laughs> the Erica typewriter. Typewriter. I always pronounce the first C in Arctic. Well, yeah, that's correct. Well, if you yeah. say Arctic, you just sound like a mouth breather. <laughs> but, but there's a there's a street in Anchorage called Arctic Boulevard. No one pronounces the C in it. Arctic Boulevard. They don't pronounce they even the second one? They're like Arda. Arda. Arda Boulevard. You can't hear the second C because the wind is blowing so hard. But uh, but I I even call the street Arctic, and uh, and, and I sound like an out-of-towner. This is a show, today's show is just an opportunity for me. I've given myself an opportunity to say the word Soviet 50 times. So let's get it out of the way that, there, that there's no other point to it. Uh, now that I've said typewriter, I can't even complain. Soviet typewriter. Pronunciation is out the window <laughs> or <laughs> the window. <laughs> Finger guns. Um, we live in a time when, uh, what, ostensibly we would say that there were no restrictions on what we could read or, or promulgate, right? You could write anything you wanted into one of your books, publish it. You would be, you know, you're, you're certainly going to get critical pushback. Criticized by readers. Right. People are going to be mad at you. But, we, we, but there, there's nothing prohibiting you from saying anything you want and in we, American society. And we treat that as absolute in American society. Like everything else is secondary to, I can put whatever I want in my book. Although it's popular right now for people culturally to suggest that there is censorship in the United States, or as we say, censorship, <laughs> censorship, um, and that people, you know, that that they're that they're culturally restricted in what they can say, and oh, you're going to get in trouble, you're going to get canceled, you're going to get, but. That's just people kvetching that their that their opinions aren't popular. Yes, it's or or, or that they're getting made fun of. Right, that people are, that well, it's just that they're mad that people are critical of what they've written. There's no actual the secret, prohibition. The secret police coming to their door to them is people calling them a, a goon online. Right, and you know, as I've said before, all these people complaining about censorship are typically doing it from 
the top rated cable news program in America <laughs> or something. So the censorship seems a little less effective than you would think. Can you imagine uh, what what it would be like to live in it? Because there are plenty of places in the world today where there's actual state censorship of of um, whole topics, whole genres. A billion Chinese people right now. Cannot access the free internet. They, they have a version of the internet that will uh, filter out things they're not supposed to be looking up or posting. I kind of need that, actually. I'm going to start using Alibaba. Just so it's like, are you sure you want to <laughs> post that? I definitely have, am doing a thing that I think is more and more common, which is, yeah, like self-restricting access to information. You're the party. Yeah, I am. I, I'm the party. Everybody said and you're the, the resistance. Pa- everybody said you're the party, like for a long time. But now you are the party. I'm the party. What would you? What do you think your? Um, if there were restrictions on what you could read, what do you think they would be primarily? I mean, I'm not primarily, but but first, in the in the event of an American autocracy, what's the most likely? What's the first thing they would censure? Hmm. All those uh, gay marriage texts. I mean, I'm trying to imagine an autocracy here, and it could really come from from anywhere on a political spectrum. Yeah, that's what I'm like. I don't really want to commit myself to what ideology is more likely to do this because I think I think it's always a boogeyman. Right. I mean, if 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 your question is, does Huckleberry Finn <laughs> does the do the racial slurs in Huckleberry Finn get censored before um, the atheism in uh, I don't know what's the, what's the right even going to censor. Well, it's interesting that you that your that your uh, your first instinct is novels, right? That novels would be censured uh, or censored or both or both. First, they're going to censure them. Then they're going to censor, censor them. But um, but of course, there's all kinds of writing and and shared ideas that aren't just sure. novels and poetry. It could be an right? evolution. It could be an evolutionary textbook that is no longer. I mean, is it censorship if a school district gets rid of it? You could, well, st- you could still get the book. The, li- yeah, right. the school library might not have it. Different kinds of censorship, right? Depending on what your, uh, if, if all, if the only like access to books you have in practice is what's in your local library, the Which fact is true. that you can get it somewhere, uh, yeah, is exactly, less effective. Although in in the Amazon age, that that goes away less. That, that kind of geographical argument is maybe more relevant to an issue like abortion or healthcare where, you know, you don't want your Amazon delivery guy um, giving you a colonoscopy, or at least I don't. Oh. But you look a little interested. Have you had a colonoscopy? I, well, I haven't seen your Amazon delivery guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, uh, I mean, we don't want to give the future the impression that the entire 21st century is a absolutist free speech paradise because even other Western democracies have more limitations than we do, you know, our, uh, the British press, the UK libel laws are a lot stricter than ours. Yes. And the national security, or at least the intersections of national security and free press tend to favor the government more there. Um, Germans and, and central Europeans have very strict anti-fascist, uh, publication laws. And also they don't like Scientology. Right. <laughs> Correctly. They have, they have seen that the two great threats to civilization are Nazism and, and Tom Cruise. Right. 
Uh, even Canada, I think, has different, uh, has kind of less absolutist, free, maybe maybe in the defamation. Oh, you can, and also about. no swears. You can't swear in, in Canada. They don't even know the swears. Yeah. If you put a swear in a Canadian book, they're like, hey, what's all this? You yeah. know, they, they've never seen those words. It's just like Fnord. They, they cro- see a swear and they cross like, the border what? and they go in our, our uh, the first service station restroom and they don't even know what they're looking at. It's like strange runes. I think there's a tendency in the West to think that um, that most of the censorship that happened in, in especially mid 20th century Soviet Union was political censorship, um, censoring ideas, censoring uh, resistance or or um, it wasn't. They were just dissidents. Pic- they were pixelating cleavage in uh, Three's Company. Well, no. Uh, what if that was their main kind of censorship? <laughs> we'll, we'll give you MTV, but everything d- gets pixelated. <laughs> you know, the Soviets were were uh, were pretty pro sex. Actually, they oh. weren't. They weren't. Um, they weren't prudes. Yeah, they weren't prudes. That's what. That's what I always say about them. <laughs> you just you needed to be having sex on behalf of the state. You, you couldn't be getting personal pleasure from it. If it, you're if you're topless, you need to be on a tractor. <laughs> then it's okay. Um, but but some of the original kind of um, some of the the uh, the censorship that happened in in the mid century was, and, and I'm talking particularly like kind of right after World War II, it was ideological in a kind of broader sense that um, Western decadence was the thing that you needed to be on the watch for. There actually wasn't much or anti-socialist political activity wasn't really that, that much of a worried about subversion. No, because most of the, you know, even the intellectuals, even the, the res- what you would think of as the resistance, they were all pretty pro-socialist. It was, you can't get more left than right. <laughs> socialism, right? So, so the resistance was either going to be reactionary, you know, pro-Slavic nationalism or, um, or something else. And the danger, the perceived danger was bourgeois values, and cynically looking back, it seems like the aim, or the aim becomes, at least as we get into the 50s and 60s, to shield the population from the knowledge that the West is actually doing great with their decadent bourgeois society. That happened, you know, that that was the thing that sort of, uh, sort of came in gradually. But at the beginning, that's not the case. Everybody's still real rah-rah about the potential of world revolution so yeah i mean there was a there was certainly a lot of global knowledge that stalin had purged 30 million people <laughs> you know stalin was not like beloved but he but that you couldn't go to the soviet bookstore and get a book called stalin has purged 30 million people you certainly couldn't i mean <laughs> but also it's i not think a great title within the ussr there was a feeling that they had won world war ii that they defeated fascism and that they were uh, the ones that were not just technologically advanced, but they they were ideologically ascendant. Yeah, right. And I mean, because the future. they they had a much more you know sort of progressive civil rights, uh, at least on the surface. We're good on women. We're they, good on ethnic minorities. They're kind not of bad, really bad but. on Jews, and also <laughs> like you know like the Crimeans and Ukrainians and every you know they're not. But if you but you could put a because the Soviet Union encompassed such a broad 
ge- geographical area, they just had so many different peoples that you could do one of those uh, We Are the World posters with people from, you know, spanning the globe, basically. And you could still oppress yeah. six to nine of them. And then they, and still, you still have a few left in peasant garb for the posters. But it didn't look like colonialism because everyone wanted a socialist future. The danger was creeping bourgeois values. And, you know, this was one of the, the, one of the things that uh, the, the Nazis were afraid of, too. You know, the Nazis, one of the, one of the things, I mean, they singled out the Jews because, you know, that's, that's an ancient practice. But one of the Trying ways that, that they felt that the Jews were undermining the Germans was that they were bringing in all this uh, culture. Modern art. Jazz. That's right. Modern art. And, so, and that was the thing that was um, – Yeah, was, you can't run a revolution with cubism. Knocking at the door. <laughs> exactly. Who's going to win? Guns or cubism? It's the, de- you know, it's the sense of moral decay. And in the, in the, well, uh, that's kind of analogous to many 21st century culture wars. It really is. Right. And, and we it, still see the same thing today. You know, normally we're for all these protections, but we have an unprecedented threat threat. And you know, if it's 1989, that threat is gangster rap. Right. You know? And if it's now it is, yeah. Uh, Wokeness or whatever it is that it's Black Lives Matter. It's undermining our culture, yeah. right? But but the flip side too, not to be a both sides type because you know I'm not. I'm an only, I'm a one sides type. And you just need to say what the side is now. I'm not going to say. <laughs> but, but you agree? You disagree with all the others? <laughs> but in that era, that that uh, that you know Stalin Khrushchev turnover period. But it, but but in the waning days of Stalin. Yeah. There was a fear that, um, or the thing, the thing that w- they were watching out for more than anything was the idea that um, uh, that individuality was a threat to the collective good of the Soviet state. That um, that to just sort of privilege the individual, and that's very different from now. Um, in the United States, right? Nobody, very, very few people are going to censor you for being too individualistic. But Dr. Zhivago by Boris Pasternak was one of the first books to, um, to be censured, not because it, there's anything in it that's politically, that politically questions the socialist system. It was. Sent- it's a vibe. It's a vibe. The the the, the, <laughs> the just hits different. The book is about the personal struggles of of the main characters, and so in so doing, it it was perceived to not advance the story of the of the Soviet state. It was a novel. It was about these individual people and their personal struggles. And that was, that alone was considered bourgeois. That's scary as a creator because it's so nebulous and, you know, has the potential to be really wielded post hoc. You know, if you, I feel like today I understand what things I say will get me in trouble. I shouldn't, I shouldn't say something transphobic because I know I will hear from it from, the left. And if I want to appeal to the right, I shouldn't say things that celebrate pluralism ne- or evolution ne- or vaccination. Say, never say communities of color. Exactly. <laughs> Don't say vaccinations work or you'll hear it or you'll hear from it from the right. Um, 
but if it's if it's just a vibe that the state is going to decide, and that might have to that might um, hinge on how readers see the work, how readers and reviewers end up coalescing around the work, then you know you could be very surprised for what lands you in jail or your book in uh, in a bonfire, especially in the in a system. Uh, like the Soviet one, where there, uh, what could be physically printed was restricted. The the um, oh, everything had to be pre. Yeah, the 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 publication industry was a state controlled industry, like everything. So it wasn't uh, it wasn't just a matter of them after uh, after the fact censuring and censoring books. It was that you could only publish a book using the apparatus of the state publishing industry. And so these state censors were, um, and, and, and again, based on a very nebulous set of ideas of right. what passed no, muster. There's no rule book the way a, a, a movie studio or a TV show could follow a list of, you know, you can't... Um, say these words right it's it's really more what gets created in the head of one reviewer and what's strange is of course the that the that the russian um literary literary like culture is such a just a crucial inextricable part of russian identity particularly 19th century 20th century and like the the right. the writers everything post pushkin is I mean that's what that's what creates the idea of of a Russia, really. Right. But within the within this system, even poetry, even the idea of poetry, became kind of bourgeois because it's going to have ambiguity, right? And, and anything with ambiguity might have a good idea and a bad idea at the same time. And who's got time? Who who is so at leisure that they can write this? Oh, right. It's even know, suspect to have something like that that exists, right? Because because it implies that you're like you. I mean, it, it, there's so many contradictions in this idea. Because at a socialist paradise, you should be able to get off your tractor and come home and read Enjo all the poetry en you want, enjoying your abundant leisure time. Right, but, but in practice, in practice, you should get off your tractor and read these approved books on the on the, you know, the growth of the socialist man, or the the promulgation of of socialist ideals, you know, there, and all of this, I, one really gets the sense that it's being decided upon by people, uh, you know, in gray suits who aren't really qualified to be making these ideological determinations, right? It's, it's because a, they're not artists or thinkers in any way. Yeah. Right. It's an extension as the state expands, uh, it's starting to like like uh, spray insulation. It's starting to fill holes where it it it, it only because it can, not because there's re there's really need for it, right? This kind of this kind of stuff, uh, this kind of censorship didn't actually advance the socialist cause, and as we're as we're going to see in a second, it precipitated the birth of a whole new publishing industry and, and artistic movement. Even. Oh, so we should thank it. This is like saying uh, Trump will lead to great comedy. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, Lenin will lead to great uh, Pasternak novels. So within the, within the sort of KGB universe, 
Um, if you you remember the hunt for Red October, I do. Yeah, and one of and Montana. Who was the? I'll never see Montana. Who was the most dangerous guy on the Red October? Who was the one that that everybody was the most kind oh, of? Oh, there, there's a there's a there's a government guy there. Is he KGB? I don't know. He, but he's the, he's the representative of the of the central party or whatever. Uh, he's the guy who's not Navy. Yeah, right. And that's uh, and that is a character that is kind of throughout Soviet society. The political officer. Who's political officer outside of the? I chain feel like of our su- our submarine should have a political officer, right? Who would our political officer be? <laughs> <laughs> it's just some like uh, really second or third generation Bush or Kennedy. Uh, yeah, right. That just does always standing there shaking his head. I mean, well, I don't know what he would be doing. Is he handing out like pins and buttons and uh, in, in 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 the a, submarine? In oh, in in your and my submarine? Yeah. Uh, no, I think it would, it's probably going to be Aziz Ansari and he's just going to be, uh, shaking his head that our jokes aren't funny. <laughs> I, I have no idea what our political officer would do. I'm in on a U.S. Navy submarine, but yeah, we do need a political officer on the show. And our, on our show. Oh, yeah. you're thinking American submarines need a political officer. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's kind of Why dangerous. don't they have one? Why doesn't Congress just send, that's who it's going to be. It's going to be some junior congressman from California. Right. Who's like, yep, I'm, uh, I'm on your tour this time, gentlemen. Uh, yeah, he's like, use direct the sonar at the seafloor to see if there's any evidence of Noah's Ark. <laughs> but in the in like Soviet um, political and social society, there were a, a, in companies and in in government agencies, there was uh, there was often what's what was called the fir- a first department, which was basically like a political officer embedded in the corporate structure of a of a oil company or a or a technology company or a um a publishing company right uh, where the 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 person was not part of the corporate structure of the business they were basically a KGB agent and their you know their goal was to not originally and i think primarily not to internally censor people but to be um to be mindful of what would be considered state secrets if you have a scientific group that's working on something the 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 product of it at the at the point at which it becomes proprietary to the soviet sphere you know you need to now maintain its its secrecy maintain its um that might actually exist in U.S. Uh, defense oh, adjacent industries. One one expects it does, right? And I think probably more and more all the time. Um, the Chinese government is working at many many levels, and and you you get a sense increasingly that this is part of tradecraft and part of of um, the way states are competing with each other on a, in a global sense. That it just just because Bell Labs comes up with a new copier technology, uh, it's now, that now has national security implications because of the way that it can be used to disseminate, um, whatever, uh, Stuxnets. I mean, believe me, I'm way out of my depth here. We don't want China to be able to resolve their paper jams faster than we can. Thank you. Exactly. We don't want a paper jam gap. Paper, paper jam gap. But it must've been a weird cultural thing in, in these corporate, whatever these corporate semi-state entities are to have just this one guy that everybody hates. 
Like the HR guy in the office, I guess? It's basically HR, except he's coming around. Uh, except he, he can have you executed. He or she, uh, because this thank was you. the Soviet Union. Thank you, John. Yeah, you're, thank, you. thank you for your service. Um, would be going around just saying like, okay, we need, you know, this needs to be stamped top secret, even though this isn't, we're not a military facility, you know, this, um, these blueprints. Yeah. Or this, this cell, um, whatever, whatever it is, the, the recognition that this is now, that this has political or economic, um, value that, that is exclusive to the Soviet state. And the, and one of the ways that they did this was they were very careful about monitoring the actual production of documents. So much so that typewriters in the Soviet Union were a closely um, reserved kind of technology. You couldn't just go down to the department store and buy a typewriter. Typewriters, even as they were manufactured, were... I mean, we see in 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 crime drama. Um, oh yeah, you can stories. match a typewriter. You can might match a typewriter. That's less common now because nobody uses typewriters. The fake suicide note had the e a fraction of an inch higher than the other letters, and therefore we know that it that's, was typed on X Y Z's typewriter. That's how Poirot is going to get to the bottom of this. And that was that was a trope in the seventies and eighties and and early nineties. But the the idea that the, that there was a forensic way to identify a particular typewriter, the same way that you could see which gun fired a particular bullet. Today you can just tell somebody's like Microsoft Word settings or whatever. Yeah, well, who would use Comic Sans? Inch, Only a murderer. Inch and a half margins. This must be Ken Jennings. Uh, but this was so true that any typewriter manufactured in the Soviet Union was immediately tested. Uh, samples were taken, and the KGB maintained a what would have been, I guess, a paper database of every typewriter. In the USSR. And this is preemptive, like there yeah. isn't there isn't anything circulating. They just want to know anytime they see text where it came from. Yeah, that's exactly it. And so, and and, and this was part, uh, initially, part of an anti-espionage project. So that if some secret work uh, was, you know, escaped the, the, the blockade... Yeah they could see exactly who was responsible, or at least they could, you know, they could find the office, they could find the desk. And so what, what that effectively meant was that if you wanted to publish your own poetry, if you wanted to, um, if you wanted to share a novel that was on some banned list, the KGB could, could see exactly where it had been produced you know that that it was it 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 slopped over from espionage to uh to these cultural restrictions because there just wasn't any way all printing presses were state controlled there wasn't there wasn't a way to disseminate written material that that um that could you know contravene a blockade surely you could hand letter it i guess that's even more distinctive though well it you could, but but in terms of trying to mass produce a work, right? If you're sitting in, uh, oh yeah, there's no there's no mimeograph technology yet, right? You can't email out your handwritten thing. Uh, there, the the copy machine, the mimeograph is there. They are there. They're they're in um, 
they're in development during this period. But again, those are all state controlled. I mean, the original copy machines were huge and expensive and not. This reminds me of just being a kid in the 80s and wishing I had access to a copy machine or a I know. typewriter. But, you know, ours wasn't that good. When we went to grandma's house, she would let us use it. But You didn't have a good typewriter? I didn't have a good typewriter. Did you... Because I remember the first time I was allowed to use the mimeograph machine where you... Where was it? At school? At or? school, in elementary school. I was, I was invited into the, the, um, the office, which at my elementary school, for some reason, was always very dark. I smelled they, like cigarettes, too. They kept the lights down. And I could sit and hand crank this, this mimeograph machine, and it had that incredibly powerful smell Somebody asked me the other day, like, what smells would evoke your childhood the most? And yeah, I think I said- That weird ditto toner stuff? I said like unfiltered cigarettes or whatever, but, but no, it probably would be, it probably would be that. When was the last time anybody smelled a mimeograph? Um, yeah, that smell's probably extinct. Yeah, right. Long gone. But yeah, all that, I mean, carbon copies. Did you ever use carbon copies? Did you ever have carbon paper? Uh, no, I mean, I've seen it on forms. I filled out forms in triplicate. But that would have been a thing probably, uh, that, that went away just in the time between when I was eight years old and when you were eight, eight years old, that, that people were routinely making carbons. Probably big in Soviet bureaucracy though. Yeah. And for futurelings, what carbon copy was, was you could, uh, there was a type of little packets of typing paper that had four leaves in different colors and you could roll it into a typewriter and the, the typewriter had enough strength to type through that first layer. And it, it had a, it had a backing of ink. The first layer would disseminate ink onto subsequent layers. Yeah. And the, and, and each layer had, a, had a, a ink backing and you could type four copies of a document on a typewriter, a manual typewriter so that, um, Think of the time savings. You could put the yellow one in the principal's office. You could put the blue one in your permanent file. You could put the green one in, send it home to your parents, and then the original document would be on the front page. Now, let's be honest. Hmm. Most people listening to Omnibus are not looking to hire someone right now. But, but they might be looking for a job. But for the small number who are, okay, it's a very important concern. If you're looking to hire someone, boy, you just think about it all the time. Think about it in the tub. Think mm -hmm. about it on the train. Um, mm -hmm. That's it. Those are the think about th it in the rain. Those are the main two times. I believe that there are a lot of entrepreneurial futurelings who realized during the pandemic that they needed to quit their corporate jobs and go out on their own. And now they're wondering, how am I going to handle all this business? This incredible business I'm generating. They've been so successful. Now they are hiring. Now they're the man. I need to hire some people, but how do I do it, Ken? Let me recommend to you Indeed.com, a hiring site that helps you find quality candidates with their proprietary Indeed Instant Match software. Indeed. Indeed. You search, they'll search through millions of resumes in their database, and they'll just find great candidates right away. Unlike some hiring sites, Indeed gives you full control and... Payment flexibility, delivering a quality shortlist faster. That's right. There's no long-term contracts. You can just pause your account at any time and you only pay for the hiring you actually need. You get a list of great candidates with 
zero weight. And according to Talent Nest, and you know, I don't quote Talent Nest lightly, John, as you know, <laughs> Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined. So get a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash Omnibus. This is Indeed's best offer available anywhere. Again, a free $75 credit by going to Indeed.com slash Omnibus. That's Indeed.com slash Omnibus. Terms and conditions apply. When the censors first prohibited the publication of Dr. Zhivago, there was within the the Russian, you know, the, the Soviet intelligentsia, a kind of dawning realization that, wait a minute, this is, um, we've, uh, we're, we're, we're missing something, clearly missing something here because- like they, it's like a, are we the baddies moment? Like they, yeah. they, they realize it's, it's oppressive now. Yeah. That the, this was, well, more than anything, this was a book that they wanted to read and it was difficult to make the clear connection between the fact that, um, that a book about individual problems was anti-socialist and the kind of paternalistic idea that therefore you shouldn't be able to read it. And so Dr. Zhivago was originally published in the West. And, and Pasternak got the Nobel Prize, I think. Is that right? That's kind of a, it's kind of a FU to the Soviets. Yeah, like a hat tip to him. Um, but the, the demand for the novel within the, within the Soviet Union meant that people started making, uh, ind- independently making copies of it. Um, and if you can imagine sitting down at a typewriter and typing, you know, having Dr. Zhivago, a bootleg copy of it here, and sitting and typing it yourself onto carbon paper or, you know, to make four copies of it, or just hand typing it to make a single copy so that now you have two copies. I mean, that's a tremendous amount of work, but there's lots of precedent for it in the arts. Plenty of people sit and copy um, you know, a hand copy, a painting centuries of monks hand copying manuscripts. Right. right. So it is a, it is a thing that in a pre mass production of, of words universe wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been an alien idea. I don't know how long it would sit for you to sit and transcribe yeah. Dr. Like a novel. I, I have never read it, but I assume it's, it's an epic. I assume it's long. It's long. Uh, but what, what is I'm that a fast typer? If you're a fast typer and you're not, and you're not actually having, you don't have to think you just have to transcribe. There are probably, there are probably tons and tons of people that would think that was a, that was kind of wonderful actually. I mean, and, and as a writer, how better to know a work than to actually sure. write it again. That's what you do in art school is copy paintings till you understand a little better what's going on. So it was, it became, um, like a a way of disseminating initially a, a a few novels that had been that had been given the like this isn't safe for public consumption treatment from Soviet censors. Are pre-lecture typewriters quiet enough that you can just tapity tap and nobody will hear you? I mean, it, you're in the office at night. Where are you? Yeah, it's un it's unclear. Um, It's, I think it's unclear sitting in an apartment building exactly what all that tapping 
probably is up to a certain point. But this was part of the this was part of the problem of of this culture of of creation, uh, uh, you know, of, of disseminating these books because there were there was a a, a lot of you know kind of report your neighbors to the authorities if they are right. if they're burning the midnight lamp. I mean that's lamp. what I'm thinking about. The Brad, Ray Bradbury solution to this is is uh, simpler. Everybody memorizes one book and then you just have to recite it. Then you become the the book. But you know, if I want to hear Dr. Zhivago, I mean for one thing, you know, a library will get 20 copies of a bestseller and people will wait for years to get, or wait for months to get their copy, but if there's only one guy that knows it, what's he going to do? Like you have to just wait for him to get done reciting it to your neighbor and then he'll come recite it to you? No, no, you have a big party. You have six, 60 people over and everybody sits uh, crisscross applesauce on the floor. And, you have a uh, big party. I mean, somebody there's going to be the political officer. Right. Turn right. in. Uh, and and so initially the the um, the the few of these works that were that were first kind of passed around, and obviously this is a thing that's happening within a literary community already. You know, this isn't that these books aren't getting made and passed around the factory floor quite yet. Uh, each one of the, each. Each copy of Doctor Zhivago that was that was self typed on carbon paper is a very valuable artifact. It took it took that much work. It's like an illuminated manuscript, kind of of the time. Weeks of work. Uh, but then there were, I mean, the first kind of political one of these was uh, was Khrushchev's speech denouncing Stalin. Oh, which, that was not released. No, 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 no. That was uh, that happened within the Politburo, and and that was not a thing that was like on the front page of Pravda. It was a uh, that was an internal speech. But it but once the transcript leaked, although it was suppressed, it was it was uh, very fascinating. It's like the, the, it's like those Nixon transcripts where twenty years later you're like, wow, this guy hated the Jews, <laughs> right? But it wasn't at the time. It wasn't a press conference. So there was so the the at the dawn of it there was there was both a literary side of it and um and a and a political side and it was the 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 term samizdat was coined to describe any of these kind of self-published um documents and, it, and samizdat samizdat it's what is that it's from uh it's from uh it's basically the russian word for uh for self-published, it's it, the Russian word for zine. It's basically, and it's <laughs> and it's uh, it's in you know it's like um, samizdat is uh, you know in in um, contrast to gozizdat, but but is dot dot means state published. Oh, okay. And then tamizdat, which means published. It basically means. Published from over there, which means any kind of foreign publication. Oh, I see. And that, that would likely be contraband as well. Right. So Thomas Dot stuff is, you know, is is published in in Cyrillic, presumably by the CIA. It probably means Tom Clancy is dot. That's Tom what it's short for. is not dot. Oh. And then goes is dot is like state and and this these words would be, you know, on the title page. Or, Just I mean, so you know, it's like uh uh, kid tested, mom approved. Right? I guess Goz's dot is on the title page of every state published. Yeah, you thing. wouldn't have to put Thomas dot on your zine. And I don't think it's I don't understood. think the CIA says Thomas dot on their on their uh, books. Well, there must have been a zine like culture, right? Then of people putting out their own little publications. I mean, I don't know if they were periodicals where they were like, "Here's what the Ramones are up to now," but um, 
Well, but so yeah, you'd have favorite uh, you'd have favorite authors and houses, and you'd know what little coffee houses to go to to pick up the new one. That did that did. There was a flourishing moment right right in this period, about 1960. So uh, there, there was a third kind of samizdat right at the time, which was um, a reaction to just the scarcity of state publica- uh, state published stuff. So Solzhenitsyn, um, during this kind of Khrushchev like liberalization, slight thaw. Solzhenitsyn published one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich. And that's about the Stalin era labor gulag. So I guess this is a time when it's okay to say. It was briefly okay to criticize Stalin. And this was a state authorized publication, but there just weren't that many of them relative to the demand for it. And so there were Samizdat um, publications of the Solzhenitsyn book, not because they were censored. Why do I keep conflating the two words? Well, obvious reasons. Not because it was censored, but because it was just scarce. It's because you're always thinking of the word sensual. I am so sensual. And you just have a hard time saying sensual. But all of a sudden during this this Khrushchev thaw, there there was a a brief explosion of what you would describe as zines. Um, uh, The three most prominent were were called Phoenix. There was one called Boomerang. Um, there was uh, one called Syntaxis. Oh, so they were little periodicals with names, just like a yeah. campus poetry magazine or a somebody's talking head zine in 1980. And they published poetry. They published, uh, you know, they were they yeah. were largely literary, not not um, not especially political. And they were fora, right? You you mm-hmm. might submit a poem to Phoenix or Boomerang. Mm-hmm. Actually, they sound like 70s children's magazines. They kind of do, or what? they or. Yeah, right. Like I always did the I hidden think picture. I subscribed to Boomerang. Yeah, I was really good at doing the the find the find the hidden objects in Phoenix and Boomerang. But that that uh, that Khrushchev thaw went away pretty fast, and by the time Brezhnev came in in the sixties, it it had um, uh, you know the the state had clamped down on all these sort of Western what they considered Western expressions, and in fact, uh, not only had they clamped down on them, they had probably never existed in the first place. Yeah, that's well. That's the other thing, right? They're they're erased from time. We've retroactively clamped down. You know, they started to actually accuse poets of social parasitism, because in order to be a poet, you had to be sucking off the life of this. You know, like you're you're just living as a. No, that's not a fair. Just because every single poet is some lazy, effete weirdo, <laughs> it doesn't mean we have to propagate that idea. So this was an era where. Where um, there was a lot of fear, well, that's our that's our our mental picture of it, right? But there was a lot of fear of just it was sort of a loose lip sink ships mentality, except about everything. There are posters that hung in Soviet office places that that just said like uh, chatting and gossip is uh, is uh, akin to high treason, and then in big letters, do not chat. Exclamation point. You need a bright line because if people are chatting, you don't want to have the responsibility of trying to figure out how decadent or subversive their chat is. You know, you don't, that's a, that would be a judgment call. Right. You can just ban chatting altogether just ban and, then, chatting. and then you know that nothing subversive is being said. I, I think that we should have a big poster in the, in the bunker here that says do not chat and we should, we should seriously consider it every day and then we will go into making these shows confident that we are part of the resistance. I used to have to... Th- Think that with my kids, you know, but now instead I just gave them all phones and that in effect bans chat. 
<laughs> Never have to hear anything they're saying. Don't have to worry about whether it's nice or mean or when to step in. Just give them a phone. So at this point, there are so many ways that the that the government government apparatchiks. Um, Apparatchiks is like typewriter. Yeah, typewriter. That I, I did that on purpose. Apparatchiks. You stole my extra syllable. <laughs> now, now I just have a typewriter like a normal person. <laughs> I took the uh, I took the e off my letter sweater and I turned <laughs> apparatchiks off his varsity sweater. Uh, there were paper shortages, and if if um, all, all these behaviors were suspect, you could. Oh yeah, it would be a waste of paper. It a waste of paper, and also if you went and bought more than a ream of paper. The paper seller would write your name down in a little book and report you to the local uh, commissar. So, what if you just have diarrhea? Nope, wrong kind of paper. Also, I think in the USSR, is, uh, is no diarrhea. <laughs> you you would just use leaves, or I don't, I don't, I have no idea what the toilet paper situations were. Reusable birch bark. We should get. Uh, we're we're going to get probably plenty of letters from futurelings who grew up uh, in pre glasnost Soviet Union, and we would like to hear about your toilet paper habits and um, and whether you actually had any Samizdat literature in your house. Toilet paper was a, a common joke uh, trope in these kind of whispered, you know, humor was a way in which people would kind of react against state censorship knowing that any kind of chat was illegal. So even though these jokes were never published anywhere, everybody knew the latest joke about the KGB or Brezhnev or whatever. And, you know, standing in line for toilet paper was a big, a big element. Yeah. Still funny to this day. The roughness of it, the unavailability of it, the, you know, you, you wouldn't have Yakov Shmirnov without this right. joke underground. So in thank Russia, goodness. paper toilets you. That's right. But Samizdat, uh, particularly when Brezhnev kind of shut down the, the liberalization of, um, of the Khrushchev era, it exploded in the, in the intellectual circles as a way of increasingly not just sharing literature, but sharing political thought. And a lot of it was handwritten. Um, but a lot of it was, was typed often on either often like individual works just retyped multiple times, or if you could get carbon paper, which was a, which was in and of itself a, uh, like a commodity, a precious commodity. And, and, and this stuff was contraband that you could bring from the West. Um, there, there became zines and, and, uh, and types of Samizdat, Samizdat that were in these different genres. So a, a, a lot of the political stuff, and the, again, as I said before, like this isn't kind of what we we imagine that political dissidents in the Eastern Bloc were all uh, trying to uh, you know espouse they democracy. Have, they have policy goals and specific uh, state uh, criticisms, and and in fact that was true, but mostly from a socialist perspective. The vast majority of political writings, underground political writings. Uh, in the Soviet Union, were written from the per, written from people saying we are uh, we are going away from the socialist path. I see, and um, and the because of these author these authoritarian bureaucracies are betraying the, the vision that we still believe in. Right, and 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 part of that is that censorship is anti socialist. Um, that this is that the, this is authoritarian. Mm -hmm. There, but then there was a sort of. 
subset of Samizdat that that was abandoning socialism in favor of democracy, but in most cases was espousing democratic socialism. So it wasn't a, it was abandoning like a, a like full state control of the socialist enterprise, but still largely believing in the socialist system, just uh, maybe a multi-party yeah, just, system in which just, socialism reigns through its, you know, the correctness of its ideas. I think b- thinking that the, uh, the autocratic period was necessary to reset the culture. Right. And then once socialism was in full flower, it would inevitably trend toward democracy, which is the bit, which is a better method. We, we gave it 45 years. <laughs> it didn't, it didn't, it didn't seem promising. Wash your hands of it. And then there were other, you know, increasingly other kind of Samizdat styles of zine. Um, there were, as I said before, the kind of Slavophile style, which when you think of Slavophilism. I rarely think of Slavophilia. You, you imagine kind of like, oh, little nesting dolls and like, oh, quaint. But in fact, it's, it's the worst version of sort of pro, combination of of it's like a racial purity thing it's more uh and i think you see this a lot in in russia in particular the idea that the russian character only responds to autocracy politically oh, yeah. you know the idea that that democracy doesn't work and you see this also in middle eastern writing democracy is a thing that only works in france and it would never work in iraq and there's a, there's a Slavic version of that too. That yeah, we need a daddy. That's right. That the was the or, name of my of my zine. <laughs> or the, well, I, and I and I remember being the cover uh, the cover <laughs> model you. many Th- times. Thank you for doing that. By the way, a lot of people <laughs> said no before you accepted. But uh, but yeah, the the idea that the Orthodox Church, in conjunction with a kind of um, like ethnic and cultural homogeneity, that's the true Russian way. And that stuff was very um, – that, that was contraband within the contraband. You know, it was not really uh, – it was not popular and it kind of threatened to delegitimize yeah. the whole Samizdat If you're going to have a zine, culture. at least have a good lefty one. But there were – you know, there were um, there were Zionist zines and I think Zionist even, zines? Zine. <laughs> but from the Refusnik culture, right, of, of uh, like a lot of Jews in the Soviet Union that wanted to stay in yeah. the Soviet Union, but uh, but an awful lot who wanted to emigrate to Israel. And there were two- com- controlled very tightly. Right? Yeah, two co- competing kind of zines, but those were also zines that were, that kind of approached it culturally. But by the mid-60s, it was a fully flourishing underground culture. And so much so that the um, that the works themselves, the 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 appearance and the tactile kind of feel of these these actual books became talismanic. Um, if you look at a Samizdat creation, it has a real vibe. It's you know it's often hand typed. Uh, in order to preserve paper, they would type all the way out yeah. to the to the very edge of the paper. Oh, I was right about the Microsoft Word margins. Right, the papers, the paper themselves, uh, you know, paper itself was the cheapest paper, probably. Uh, yeah, kind of onion skin or or even um, 
even carbon carbon paper. If yeah. you can think you of can, a hand bound book, four at once. yeah, made out of carbon paper. Uh, so the so the the act of reading Asama's dot work became kind of an artistic experience. Do you find this is true of your reading in general? Like I sure do. Like, don't you enjoy a book more if it has some tactile thing you like, a typeface you enjoy, or the pages feel? You know, reading a reading a airport sized paperback just feels different than reading a hardcover feels different than reading kind of an old weird smelling school library copy a book with with you know that roughed edge to the to the um, to the outside edge do, of the do page. you like the deckle edge i do yeah i it took me a while because i was like this isn't very neat if i turn this in in school i'd get points docked for this but i'm a convert to that in the late 90s during the typeface and home self-published or small press publishing yeah, revolution the era of home desktop publishing there were a lot of Books, you know, book binding became kind of a hipster, uh, yeah, people uh, like a trade, I guess, that people were trying to resurrect. And I knew quite a few artists who made books where the written work itself was secondary to the book as a as a creation. And I remember writing stuff at the time, thinking, "Wow, I would like to publish this as one of these." little miraculous books. Um, not because I think the writing itself is even maybe worthy of it, but because the book would be yeah. such a beautiful object. And that's kind of, a new, that's kind of a new, I think that's become newly emphasized as eBooks have become an option. It's the reason vinyl came back, you know, preserve right. this thing as a fetish object, even though we know there are more convenient ways to deliver the content to you. I was very upset this week when I heard that um, Scott Rudin would like throw the producer Scott Rudin would throw uh, staplers at underlings if they didn't use his favorite font, which was Garamond. Ugh. And I hate. And I was so uh, that really struck me to the core because I love Garamond. That was always <laughs> my favorite. And now you font. feel it's been politically corrupted, dating back to my yearbook editor days. And now I feel like it's ideologically tainted, and yeah. I'm going to have to switch to Benbow or something. Well, and the and the you know the typefaces of these um, Samas dot works also were uh, because you were restricted in the in the way you could print. You know, the, in your access to um, to certain styles of printing and certain you know that 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 the typeface itself became kind of um, an emblem of. Of the work of the style, like you, you, uh, you see that typeface, and you're immediately like, "This is, this is independent, subversive material." Right. Which brings us to the nominal topic of our show. Finally, the Erica. Six hours later, the Erica typewriter, which was a typewriter that uh, that had its origins before World War II in what became East Germany. It was a typewriter made by the Siedel and Naumann Company, um, and it was. You know, one of the it was a, a portable typewriter that came in a little carry case, and was a was one of those pre-war kind of industrial objects that was also a thing of beauty. That was the era of the portable manual typewriter. You can you can picture Ernest Hemingway at a bullfight with his little Smith Corona or whatever whatever. I mean, it even was. in the seventies and eighties, when I was a kid goofing around with a typewriter, they often came in these little briefcases, yeah. like a sewing machine would. I have a small collection of of typewriters and briefcases. Oh, I'm looking at the Erica right now. Well, so there are multiple Ericas, but the 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 pre-war Erica 
um, uh, when Germany was partitioned after the war, the the um, the Naumann factory was on the eastern side and became an East German industry. Where, although we think of you know East Germany, the DDR as not being like uh, not the country that was producing the most wonderful uh, sort of consumer products in the sixties, seventies, and eighties, they were making some. Great things. Luck of the draw. Anything in East Berlin, they right. got to keep. And you know there were there are some incredible microphones uh, that were made in East Germany that are that are you know kind of prized in the recording industry. Today. I would imagine today people would put up with slightly substandard stuff just for the coolness factor of being an uh, an odd bit of Cold War memorabilia. Well, but uh, you know as as things in the West moved to transistors, you know things in the East were still using tubes a lot longer, and then it's like oh wow those were those are better series of tubes, but the the Erica typewriter was, and I think, and you can go now and and see that there are collectors, there are typewriter collectors. If you want to go on the internet and go down the rabbit hole of typewriter collectors, I do. You can, you will, you'll realize that it's basically you have to use Tor to really see all of the the uh, the dark web typewriter talk out there. Are they going to be mad at how I pronounce the word typewriter? Typewriter? No, I bet you there are people that are like, finally. Word. <laughs> Finally, someone is pronouncing it correctly. But there's a in, there are giant underground caverns of typewriter people out there still still like arguing over. I'm sure that's who we're speaking to yeah. in the far future. But the Erica typewriter and and its uh, and its subsequent sort of uh, the evolutions, the Erica Model M and then the Model 10 and the Model 20. These were manual typewriters that were in. Uh, you know that were portable in small carrying cases that just had a wonderful uh, a wonderful feel a tactile feel to them but more importantly they were produced in east germany but not individually serial number uh, uh connected right. to samples and monitored by the KGB. So you'd have to bring one in to yeah. the Soviet Union unregistered, but that would be comparatively easy to do so compared to bringing it from the West because you just have to get it from the DDR. Right. You could you could travel to the DDR, and, and this was a thing that if you were a member of this culture, if you could secure... An Erica M. Now, of course, it had to be in. It had to be in a Cyrillic typewriter. And Cyrillic, oh, right. I didn't even think about that. The one I'm looking at is Roman alphabet. Cyrillic typewriters. You know, the the Russian alphabet has 33 level, letters, whereas the Latin alphabet has 26. They are superior to us. Yeah. So a Cyrillic typewriter is a different creature, and a lot of the you know those the 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 extra letters kind of expand into the region where. Uh, like a Latin typewriter has all this extraneous superfluous. Well, you know, even the German one I'm looking at has expanded a little because, I mean, it's got a few oddities. It's a quirts, not a QWERTY keyboard. The Y and the Z are swapped right. for some reason. And But also there's... Um, they use the Z more in German. Oh, I guess that's why. Right. Yeah, you want... The, oh, that makes sense. If the Y is the oddity, so you put it down where our Z is. Interesting. Yes. But then they also have... You don't build your own umlaut letters. Those each have their own key. So, like, to the right of the P is U with an umlaut, and then to the right of the L on the home row is an O and then an A with an umlaut. I did quite a bit of research into this and could not get through the the challenge of Googling that we have these days, which is that you want to spe- find a specific vein of talking on the Internet. And in my case, what I wanted to know was, in a situation where you are – you. Sp- 
you uh, write in a Cyrillic alphabet, but all you have access to is a Latin typewriter. Yeah. How do you do it? There must be a way. If you were, if you were Russian and you only had a Latin typewriter and you wanted to type a document, there must be a way that through a combination of kind of backspace and then add or backspace and subtract, you, you just build. You could build a Cyrillic alphabet out of out of a Latin one. Are you saying that? Erica did not make Cyrillic typewriters, or they did both, but people would make do with Latin ones. Sometimes. No, Erica did build Cyrillic typewriters. I was just curious that there must... I mean, there's no way you could take a Latin typewriter and write Arabic or Japanese sure. on it. But there's so much overlap with a Latin alphabet that I wonder... There has to have been a hack. The problem is trying to Google it now... All I would, all I found was a thousand different websites explaining how to load Cyrillic characters into your Mac alphabet program. I mean, a lot of the Cyrillic. I'm looking at the Cyrillic alphabet now, and a lot of these are not super compatible. No, you would have to, you'd have to modify it somehow, and I'm just not sure whether that, whether I'm just imagining that or whether I mean, it there's was like possible. Four different letters that look kind of like a lowercase b, and so I don't know what you do there. What's interesting about Samizdat is enough of it survived. I mean, by the by the eighties, the Lenin State Library had a collection of over a million documents uh, that that were part of a Samizdat culture. And what was why were those just historical artifacts by the time that were politically non threatening? No, or? these these weren't publicly available. They I were see, been seized. Know, yeah, they were a, a collection of of um, documents you know kept in. Uh, kept under lock, lock and key, but in a kind of crazy sort of um, Orwellian way, a lot of the a lot of the Samizdat stuff made its way into the into the official state, like higher ups, it, it, the 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 thinkers of the of the autocracy. Because they had to be reading this stuff to know what to censor. Um, well, don't those people always kind of feel they have special rules anyway? Yeah. Of course, the peasants don't get this kind of vodka and this kind of novel, but uh, I'm a party member. It's the, it's the Fahrenheit 451 thing, right, where, you, where the, the firemen all have their special texts, you know, hidden under their, their pillowcase. But the... But the the sense is that the Samizdat writing kind of influenced the Soviet uh, the Soviet mind and vice versa throughout the sixties and seventies. And you know, the, the, there was another explosion that happened around the Prague Spring. I mean, every one of these sort of democratic uh, moments in in the Eastern Bloc was accompanied by a kind of literary moment also. And yeah. most of that was happening in this Samizdat world. I mean, Vaclav Havel's writing was really popular in this underground. He was a playwright. There was, uh, there, the, the, the longest one of these zines blogs was, um, was called the Chronicle of Current Events. And it went, it started in 68, right around the kind of, you know, student, the global student movements. It lasted all the way into 1982. And it was, it, it, it positioned itself as a kind of um, a WikiLeaks or a political truth teller. Um, they they wrote in really dispassionate language about 
about the kind of state suppression of uh, writers, artists, minorities, et cetera. They, they had um, they had the the kind of following headings. They they had extrajudicial persecution mm. was a, was one of their um, rubrics. Uh, arrests, searches, and interrogations, prisons, and and camps. This is serious uh, stuff. This isn't just cultural stuff, right? Persecution of religion, persecutions of the Crimean uh, Crimean Tartars. Uh, persecutions of the Ukrainians and Lithuanians, like each issue sought to kind of publicize all this secret state, um, stuff that wouldn't have made it into Pravda. Wouldn't have, people wouldn't have been aware of it otherwise. Um, and it had a broad enough readership that it could like start to affect thought. Kind of like the Omnibus podcast, it was popular among a very narrow or very small but incredibly influential group of writers and readers. It was a cult sum listeners, right? Exactly. Um. So then, by the time of Gorbachev, um, that a, a lot of the a lot of the the Samizdat publications were suppressed in the eighties and then Gorbachev and his glasnost really blew open the doors. And in the, in the last half a dozen years of the Soviet union, there was just a proliferation of these zines and they all had names like, um, left turn and open zone. I wonder if they would keep using the old, um, aesthetic and, uh, you know, even though now there's not the need to use, some crappy old German typewriter. I don't know if they kept up the look and feel. Well, within the Samizdat culture, it uh, it absolutely was true that it became like the the experience of reading something in Samizdat became its own aesthetic experience. So much so, kind of like the books of the '90s, the self-published books of the '90s. Um, oftentimes the the artifact itself would be greater than the, than its contents. It kind of didn't matter as much what you were reading to a certain kind of, of thinker as it mattered that it was produced in this way. The, it was, you know, it was like listening to a scratchy vinyl record where you could listen to something, you know, that's more pristine, but you have the, it's the analog experience. The medium is the message. And there is an analog to this in music. Um, vinyl records were also suppressed. And so there became an, a rock and roll and all this sort of Western jazz yeah. and so forth. There became an underground, a Samizdat music industry in the Soviet Union where they, you remember those little plastic records you would get in a mad magazine or, sure. you know, a, um, so, yeah, sometimes they would even come in music magazines, yeah. you know, you'd Q or whatever would come with a. A little floppy little LP. Or LP. So that became a way in the Soviet Union that people disseminated contraband music. And the plastic that was best suited to this kind of, um, to, to having uh, music etched into it mm-hmm. were uh, discarded x-rays. And so whole LPs would be etched into you know, X found X-rays, this, you know, that, 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 uh, cellulite or whatever, not cellulite, but celluloid. cellulose, celluloid, whatever that floppy, yeah. uh, X-ray, um, film was. 
and it became a, a, a those records were called ribs would there still be anatomical stuff visible yes you could hold the, well, the record metal. up and and it would be and that's why they're called ribs you could see you know a chest x-ray on your on your sergeant pepper album so you could hold it up and the doctor would be like uh you know, you've got a blockage uh, by the aorta, and also the drums are a little low in the mix. <laughs> that that those became fetish items. They sound terrible, of course. I would imagine. But if that's your only way of of getting were Sergeant Pepper, were they bootleg Western stuff? They, all, they weren't homegrown. Oh, okay. No, a lot of bootleg Western stuff, but also also homegrown. I mean, because the, there was you know there was the, the rock and roll was used to dissent. Yeah. Uh, and there were, you know, there were uh, Soviet musicians called bards who kind of did the, what you would imagine a kind of acoustic folk um, telling the story of the Soviets or telling the story of the Russian, the glorious Russian people. Plus, there's the time that Billy Joel came to Red Square. You can imagine everybody would want to would want a bootleg of that. There's actually a well, no. By that point, I think you could actually get it on. <laughs> What's weird is that that reel to reel tape machines were not uh, restricted. Like you mm. could own a reel to reel. It was vinyl that was the... They're hoping you'll record your neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> and that concludes the Erica Typewriter. Entry 424.jb0412, certificate number 37914, in the omnibus. Now, uh, for the loose association of Samas.like material that surrounds our endeavor, uh, you can go to various places, uh... There's the uh, informal material flying among the futurelings on Facebook and Discord and Reddit and elsewhere. Just look for the futurelings. Uh, there is uh, our social media materials at Omnibus Project. A lot of the good stuff is on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Omnibus Project, where um, if you support the podcast financially, you can get uh, bonus episodes, uh image and visual feed uh, and then all kinds of even fancier perks for you know well-placed party members you can email us in this era at the omnibus project at gmail.com there uh, we have a p.o box for physical uh, items if you want to send us your your um grandpa's copy of dr zhivago or phoenix or boomerang from the old world I've never seen, a, I don't think I've ever seen, maybe in like museums, I've seen a Samus.document. document. What's interesting is you can go online and buy Samus.documents. documents. As I said, there's a huge market for Erica typewriters, not among Samus. Uh, hipsters, but just typewriter hipsters. You have to fight the typewriter hipsters to get to the Samus. hipsters. Tom Hanks is outfitting you at every turn. But you know, the typeface of, of the Erica is so distinctive. Um, and you you can find these Samizdat books for sale for a hundred bucks or whatever, and the the books themselves are just gorgeous. Um, I've really considered. I don't want to get into that, uh, but it does seem like something that you could put next to your Braille Playboy. I do like it. It's not you know it's not that different from a Western typewriter font of the time. You know you could see it going tick 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 across yeah. the screen in a seventies paranoia thriller. Yeah. It's interesting. But if you look at it kind of in its onion paper yeah. typed to the edges best, what's funny is that that it um the the one of the, the ways that the Soviet government used to try to censor 
Samizdat was they made the argument that because a lot of the authors wrote anonymously in order to not get caught, sure. right? The the government said that uh, that this was a copyright issue that the the authors weren't getting royalties uh, there or they weren't getting the attribution and so the uh so the government needed to s- to clamp down on Samizdat because it was a violation of the author's rights <laughs> you know the i'm looking at the font now it's the lowercase r and the c that have a distinctive little curlicue that i really kind of like yeah it's fun uh so yeah please send us your uh send us your zines of all kinds uh, we got something mystifying in the mail this week. Oh. And literally, I think there, as far as I can tell, there's no enclosure and not even a return name, but it's four kind of weird little mini postcards that kind of have the weird waxy texture of a... Are they stickers? Placemat or something? I don't... They do have some kind of... They do have a backing with a distinctive picture, but I don't think they're stickers. You Toss one over. You here. tell me what these are. It looks like maybe the Capitol Building, Independence Hall, their watercolors, and I don't know what these two are. Is this the... What skyline is that? Pittsburgh? No name, so we don't know who has sent us these. Yeah, that looks like Philadelphia. Philadelphia? I mean, that that's, would, But they're not all Philadelphia, oh, no, right? No, that's... No, that... That's the, clearly the U.S. Capitol. There's not some kind of domed Pennsylvania equivalent, right? Or is that the art museum? No, I don't... Hang on. I think that that is, I think that that, I think they're all Pip Philadelphia. Then what's the domed building? I couldn't figure it out. Uh, is it the. Um, and also, why are there palm trees on the street scene? Hmm. Palm it's trees. a mystery. If the nameless person who sent this in from Little Rock, Arkansas, would like to let us know, I mean,. Well, maybe that is the U.S. Capitol. Is there some? Uh, I mean, is there some explanatory email where somebody said, "Hey, by the way, I just sent you guys some uh, some weird sticker things." I missed it, but thank you, sir, for sending us these cryptic. Uh, these are very cryptic, and I have no. Oh, oh, wait! You didn't look at the back. Well, the back has a. What's the, is it a seal? What is the repeating pattern? Well, look at it. It's um. At first, I, at first, I thought it was Tony the Tiger, but I think it's the Esso Tiger. Oh, uh, I think you're right. That's funny. I just thought it was a floral design, but it's a cartoon tiger. It is the Esso Tiger. So these are some kind of gas station giveaways? Maybe so. Esso Tiger Cityscapes. Let's see what that brings up. No. Here we go. Laminated travel cards. I found them. Here's somebody selling Put them Put a tiger on eBay. in your tank. Placemat sets. Oh, there it is. They're, they're, uh, they're placemats. The artist is George Shaw, apparently. I can't think what we would have mentioned. These just seem like something weird that someone would... I love them. Thank you for sending these to so us, nameless Arkansan. The Capitol, Williamsburg, Virginia, Independence Hall, Gloucester, Mass. Well, we don't have a complete set. No, but uh, but these are these are too small to be placemats, aren't they? I well, mean, no, they're only the size of a postcard. The ones I see are. I mean, maybe they're the same image you could get on a 
postcard, but these are called laminated travel cards. But what do you, what does one do with a laminated travel card? I mean, you, you pick it up at the gas station, but unlike a map, what's it going to, well, it's an idea of where to go next. It's just like, uh, it's just like collecting shot glasses. What the, how many shots are you ever going to take out of your collection of 50 shot glasses? That's why gas stations used to give the big, the better glasses. So they, they come in this set of five. Or five or six. How many do we have? Five? We have four. So they come in sets of six, two. Oh, are they supposed to be coasters? If No, I don't think they're coasters. Why are they rectangles? I don't know. But thank you, nameless yeah. Arkansas resident. Super weird and great. But, you know, we Ken, you and I used our combined abilities to get to the bottom of what those were. I would not have, uh, I would not have recognized the SO Tiger. Uh, you can send us your own uh, weird ephemera to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Future links from our vantage point in your distant past, where we are able to publish whatever we want, including Ken's multiple books. Unreadable books. Of uh, children's smarty pants stuff. No one reads them, but they uh, have to be published by force of law. Well, and It's also, my right as a citizen. No, all your grown-up books that are available in better airports. Have you ever had a book in an airport? I have. I've seen my book in an airport. What, which one? Map I don't remember. Maybe the map one. I remember I was in that uh, bookstore that's not at SeaTac anymore, and I saw my book on the shelf, and I took it out and signed it surreptitiously. <laughs> and, then, and then I messed with some other stuff to put it face out, yeah. you know, in hopes that somebody will buy it quicker that way. Yeah. You, know, you don't want to be the last book left in the orphanage. And uh, while I was in there, William Hung was uh, from American Idol, if you remember Mr. Hung, sure. was also perusing the sh- same shelf. I don't know what he was doing in... Looking for his book. He was also looking at, at biographies, I guess. And to this day, I've wondered, what if somebody came by and saw us there and thought, the Jeopardy guy hangs out with William Hung now? Yeah, this cannot be a coincidence. It, I, I, only me and William, if you recognize me, knew that it was. Well, we have no idea how long this ridiculous civilization that would that would uh, put Ken Jennings and William Hung together in an airport bookstore. We have no idea how long that could possibly survive. Doesn't seem doesn't seem like a going concern. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus. <laughs>